Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring starship sofa and far-fetched fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. I've talked about books and movies and TV shows, even graphic novels, that I think that you might have some interest in. One of the things I'm quite sure that I've never mentioned before is board games. Recently, an in-law sent my wife a copy of Mansions of Madness. The base game, more on that later, is set in a mansion in H.P. Lovecraft's world. The investigators move through a mansion, looking for clues and confronting the dark creatures that prowl the grounds. At the heart of the game is an app, available for your phone or a computer, that handles much of the storytelling, skill checks, and some randomization. The first time I played it, I was expecting a rip-off of Betrayal at House on the Hill, which is another board game that I think I'd give a so-so review on. But it is not. It is its own thing. Children of the Night, just before you rush out to buy Mansions of Madness on my recommendation, I'll give you two words of warning. The first is that it is not checkers. It is complicated, and the first playthrough that happened at my table, we lost horribly because the person who took up the task to read the rules literally hobbled our characters by skimming over the part that says how many spaces you can move. It can be a lot to take in at once if you are not accustomed to board games with a degree of complexity. The second one, it's also priced a bit more than checkers. As of this recording, the base game retails for 100 American dollars, and there are about $200 worth of add-ons that you can get for it as well. I'm not quite sure I'm sold on the game well enough to feed another couple hundred bucks into it, but I might get there. If you are turned off by having to have an app to play the board game with friends, another horrific board game, which is one of my current go-tos, is Dead of Winter. The dead have risen and dragged most of the world into their ranks. Now you, and your frenemies, must survive at a colony to work towards a common goal, but there may be a traitor in your midst. It is a bit of a story that goes with each of the scenarios, and has almost always been a fun experience for me. And one more board game to mention just before we get on to our fiction. If a desperate survival in a zombie-plagued world isn't your cup of tea, if you'd rather kill your way through them, take a look at Zombicide. First up will be a short one from Chris Panettiere. Chris lives in Dallas, Texas. His short fiction has appeared in the Ginger Collect magazine and is sitting on a number of finished novels, if anyone wants to publish them. He does book covers and album art for tiny metal bands. He's also an attorney. Listen with me to Chris Panettiere's Bipinanaria, a Tales of Terrify original.
Nelson heard his baby speak for the first time at seven weeks. It was earlier than expected, but a pleasant surprise, a gift. If he went all the way to full term, it meant thirty-five joyous weeks spent getting to know each other. He'd uplinked all of the books from the popular Know Yourself, Know Your Baby, written by the architects of the procedure, all the way to the 25th edition of Old Reliable, What to Expect When You're Expecting. Communication would be basic at the beginning, but she was already speaking, entire words. He'd always expected the first words would come as a question. You come into being and you're full of questions, right? Who am I? Where am I? But she hadn't posed a question at all. Just a quiet comment, a tiny voice that said, Warm. Warm. A simple status update to advise that the temperature was fine and to please not change it. Adorably mundane. Oh, how he loved her already. Naturally, he spoke him back, yammering on excitedly like a teenager in a flock of teenagers, asking questions at a thousand miles an hour as if he were the one who'd just been sparked into existence. The girl had remained silent, happy to float in his cozy amniotic until she felt the need to further the conversation. Nelson came awake two days later to a flutter of kicking. My, she is strong. So had he been at one point in his life. He thought about heredity, about how he'd wished she would get all of his best attributes and none of his less desirable traits, and reminded himself that she would get all of them. That was how this worked. The next thirty-five weeks would be about helping her navigate the good and the bad of who they both were. Nelson? Her second word. He sat up into his stack of pillows. Clara. I like it. It's like I chose it. I'm so glad, said Nelson, glowing. So, hello. What's it like in there, kid? Nice. Not too cramped? He forced a nervous chuckle. Well, I don't think so. I'm not used to anything else. Good point, he said, patting the sheets, unsure what to say next. So, said Clara, I think I'm only going to be awake for a few minutes. Where do you want to start? Right, the books all said that fetuses slept often and hard, so the windows for embedding would be narrow. He scrambled for his notebook at his bedside and folded it over, donned his readers. He skimmed the topics he thought were most important to cover. It all seemed like such nonsense now. Large, somewhere deep in his brain, the instincts hardwired by evolution said the world should be her teacher. But then, what would have been the point of all this? Uh, okay, so number one, some things will set you off. You'll have a temper you need to get control of. It took me years to learn that things shouldn't make me nearly so angry as they did. So that's the first thing I wanted to make you conscious of. I want to get the time back that I missed being pissed off. What do you get mad at? Uh, suddenly he was self-conscious. Come on, Nelson, let's have it. All right. He ran his finger absently down the list. People who don't say thank you when you do something nice for them. Say, let them go in front of you when you're waiting in line and they just breeze on through like it was their spot all along. It's just rude. That makes me furious. Who would do that? Yeah, I know. Drives me crazy, he said. So you got to get control of that early. It's a waste of time and energy, okay? Oh, I'm mad just hearing about it. So you see my point. He went down the list. Um, okay. Make friends in every setting 
at school, at work, introduce yourself to perfect strangers. You'd be surprised where friends can come from. Why wouldn't I make friends? Seems obvious, doesn't it? His working life came to mind. Decades spent going somewhere fast, no time for socializing, all capped by a retirement party and a deafening solitude. People get caught up in stuff. They think others will wait. They won't. And then it's too late. I think I'm getting tired. Uh, um, all right, he said, closing the notebook. Well, talk to you soon. I, I love you. Good night, Nelson. God, did he love her. Deeply, with every fiber, he loved her. He knew utterly that he would do anything for her, give his own last breath. He loved her like one would love a child. As the one carrying the baby, this new thing hadn't altered those feelings. They were human nature. He didn't care what the book said. Over the next seven months, Clara grew demanding ever greater detail on all that Nelson had learned in life, navigating the embedding process without his having to steer. Analytical, she versed herself in the nuance of all manner of circumstances, role-playing different ways of handling situations Nelson had experienced firsthand and questioning the paths he'd taken. Her rabid desire for knowledge and information was a sight to behold. He was proud of her, the effort she'd invested, and of how prepared she would be when he rekindled within her around age eight. Knowing Clara, she'd probably tap in at six. His body was tired, exhausted by the physical burden of pregnancy on top of his advanced age. He felt the pinch of guilt in hoping her birthday would hurry on up and bring some mercy. Nevertheless, his heart was brimming. The books predicted this, of course, advising that it was important to guard against such feelings that they were merely the result of a false stimulant the provoked firing of neurons in some place within the forebrain called the striatum. The progeny is not your child, they warned. Ludicrous. How could such words have been written? Of course Clara was his child. How could he not be completely in love with her? He scoffed at the books, flouted their advice. The most obvious downside to clinical resurrection was, of course, the necessary death of the progenitor. Parent had connotations. In order to get approval, the architects of the procedure, something they called bipinaria, had to give assurance that it wouldn't turn into a cloning enterprise. So they authored a pair of gene edits a rather violent hatching drive, and a razor-sharp fetal talon on the palm with which to execute it. Akin to a reptile's egg tooth, it would assist the breach, eviscerate the progenitor, and then promptly fall off. To give birth to yourself, you had to be willing to die. That was the price of immortality. Nelson felt a change at week 39. The books and doctors said it was coming, but that didn't make him ready for it. What preparation was there for something that could only be done once? Clara's movements intensified. The uterine flailings became unapologetic, even brutal. Sure, it was painful, but like any parent, his only concern was her distress. He sang to her the songs of his mother. I see the moon, and when you dream. But they did nothing to calm the titanic fits that left his ribs aching. Her appetite, too, was ravenous, and he devoured every food she craved, happy to please her as he gorged past his limit. Nelson didn't sleep much over those last weeks. Part of it was Clara, of course, ever more active and demanding. 
but his love for her had swollen his heart to bursting. She was his child if ever there were children, and he was her father. The truth of it was etched into the nucleus of his every cell, and it was misery. He was abandoning her. Lying on his side with a pillow between his legs, Goodnight Moon drooped in his hand as he dozed. A sensation, a gentle stretching of muscles spread from his diaphragm to the base of his stomach. He woke knowing what was happening, needing to feel it again to be sure. A deliberate up and down on the elastic walls of his uterus, like a blade drawn flat over the honing strop. The stroking had begun. All the books ended here, detailing the soft metronome caress of tiny knuckles that presaged labor. Nelson put his physician on call. He would have about six hours before Clara rotated her hands, palm up putting the talon a gesture away from the outside air. It was at this point that most progenitors headed to the hospital to be put under so as to avoid the last part. Not Nelson. He didn't see how anyone could go and knock themselves out before they welcomed their child into the world. It was just like Clara to cut labor in half— Nelson groaned as the stroking grew firm and insistent. An inexorable thing had been set in motion. At any moment, a man-made string of code in her DNA would tell her it was time to be reborn. The claw would rent the path. Clara, he gasped, I know you're coming. It's okay. I love you. Roll onto your side. Some months earlier, Nelson had looked up the namesake for the procedure, Bipinaria. It was starfish larva. He'd done a double take, making sure he was looking at the correct entry, but that's what it was. A photograph showed a translucent speckled blob. And he'd laughed, wondering what on earth it had to do with C.R., when the entry came to the growth cycle, he understood. A tiny armed node deep within the juvenile starfish slowly consumes its own soft body. When the blob is gone, the fish is ready for the open sea. Clara had taken of his body, sure. It was his mind she had consumed. A great gushing of blood and amniotic fluid fluttered across the bed. The pain, if indeed there was any, suffocated beneath his heart's elation. Clara was here. He loved her as she erupted. Embedded in his womb, the talon broke free of her hand, pink and fat. His arms, limp as they were, tried but failed to touch her. A tunnel of black swept inward, and he placed the beatific face to the center of his vision. A child, his daughter, himself. That was Chris Panettiere's By Pinaria, as read by Martin Rato. Martin Rato is an educator, writer, and musician. He has worked in an eclectic variety of fields, including 18 years as a technical writer and software developer, 16 years as a teacher of creative writing, 
computer science, and business communication, and a shorter stint as a symphony musician and audiobook narrator. He has published short fiction and two collections of his poetry. As always, thank you, Martin. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Our second story for the night comes to us from K.C. Griffont. K.C. Griffont is a New England to Southern California transplant who writes internationally published horror fantasy, science fiction, and weird Western stories. Her award-winning science articles have appeared in dozens of media publications, while her fiction stories have found homes in collectible card games anthologies, including the Stoker-nominated Frightmare, Women Write Horror, and magazines such as Andromeda Spaceways Magazine, The Lovecraft Ezine, and Horror Bites. In addition, she is the co-founder of the Horror Writers Association, San Diego Chapter, an organization that helps to connect writers and fans of horror literature. For more information, visit www.scifirai.com, twitter.com slash scifirai, or amazon.com slash author slash Griffon. Links to all of those will be in the show notes. Listen with me to K.C. Griffon's The Peerlings, which originally appeared in Beyond the Infinite, Tales from the Outer Reaches Anthology, 2018. Xenobiology, Entry 210-R Never look at them. We know they're coming from the buzzing. It starts an hour or so after what passes for sunset here scrawls its fluorescent yellow warning over the dunes. We call them the peerlings after our psychologist glimpsed a blur at her window before shutting her eyes out of fear. Something peered through the window, she said. Once the buzzing receded, she forced herself to look. There was nothing to see. The peerling was gone, and her husband had vanished. The first of many. 
For almost ten years we lived on this new world in relative peace. We don't know why the Peerlings came, or why colonists started disappearing at the same time. Extensive interviews of the survivors point to one perplexing conclusion. If you don't see the Peerlings, you don't get taken. Keeping your eyes closed, even if you hear them, somehow protects you. A few colonists tried hitting or catching a peerling with eyes shut, but to no avail. Cameras fizzle when the peerling's near. Even pulling a blanket or hat over your eyes isn't a foolproof safeguard. The peerlings can make a sleep mask or sheet drop. The buzzing might resemble whispering at that point, hissing words that never fully form, though they drone on and on like an obsessive conviction your mind can't shake. But the one thing the peerlings seem unable to do, for whatever reason, is force anyone's eyes open. So at night, we all pretend to be asleep, though we're far from it, willing ourselves not to peek as the buzzing intensifies. The curiosity almost kills you as much as the fear itself. Karen, the mayor, wasn't having any luck in stopping the bastards. She instituted a curfew so all the colonists were in bed, eye masks on, by sundown. But despite her precautions, people were still disappearing. She had lost 46 people out of several hundred since the Peerlings made their first appearance three weeks ago. It had been a tough year. They had already lost a few souls to a violent stomach flu that had, at least, quickly run its course. Business as usual had ground to a halt, save for baseline processes and preparations for a contingency plan. Two scouting teams were investigating whether Peerlings showed up in various geographic regions around their colony. They needed potential relocation options immediately. As the mayor passed from the housing structures toward their base, she overheard the geologist lecture to a small knot of people in the low morning light. He stood within the orb of a bulb hanging above the water storage shed. Even during midday, the planet never lit up more than a weak, salmon-colored glow from its nearby dimming sun so they kept lights on throughout the day. But the atmosphere was livable, which was all that mattered. Humans do things even when they know they shouldn't, the geologist declared, shadows cascading along his grooved face. The peerlings show us we don't have willpower. Perhaps we do not deserve to be on this fresh new land. Perhaps we are being punished. A few murmured in agreement, and the geologist went on, emboldened as a small-town preacher, running a hand through his thinning hair. Humans are inherently chaotic. We have no willpower. Witness our non-viable home planet. Karen rolled her eyes and continued to the offices. All the colonists had been screened for mental stability before they left the habitat ships, but none of the hypothetical alien encounter scenarios they tested had anticipated what they were going through now. Theirs was one of thousands of self-sufficient colonies that had scattered from the life ships to livable habitats once Earth was no longer an option. This planet wasn't a bad option. Aside from the murky sunlight and stronger gravity than they were used to on the ships, it was a refreshing change. She had left an executive PR position at Forever Light, an energy mining company that had flown no less than four ships. Being mayor, even for only 500 people, that sounded like a good career shift at the time. The ships were never meant to be permanent homes. The change offered Karen the chance to start something new, something meaningful. But nothing in her extensive crisis management training came close to preparing her for this disaster. Her team had calculated that, at this rate, their colony would dip below needed personnel levels for maintaining survival procedures in a mere month. They couldn't go back to Earth or the ships, and they didn't have the means to find another planet. Two of her executive team were waiting in the lab, both with dark circles under their eyes. We have a new religious sect, it looks like, Karen said dryly as she perched on one of the stools. Our geologist has become a peerling prophet. He's a crackpot, Jasmine, the head of technology, said. Can't weed them all out, I suppose. I'll have to talk to him about it, Karen sighed, as if she didn't have enough to do. That reminds me of the early settlers, Puritans. They were strict, but that mentality kept people alive in harsh environments, piped Omar, the engineering lead. Irrational beliefs are hardwired. 
They help us clump together and impose order in the face of isolation and uncertainty. Karen, maybe it's best that they have an outlet. The mayor nodded slowly, but Jasmine didn't look convinced. Uncertainty, Jasmine snorted. I think you mean fatal invasion? If we're not careful, the hive mind will turn into outright hysteria, and we'll be waging battle on two fronts. What have we got? Karen said. Jasmine placed the exobiologist's report on the table. He disappeared last night while trying to observe the peerlings from behind a barrier of protective eyewear and a suit helmet. They had told him it was a bad idea, but he insisted. Said he couldn't go another night not knowing. The team scanned his last recorded notes. Since anything electronic fizzled in the presence of the peerlings, he had done it the old-fashioned way. Erasable ink on a wipe-off board. Typos and all. Xenobiology Entry 210W Face-to-face test. Testing physical shield, 1.05 a.m. Buzzing southwest. Higher frequency buzzing, likely way of communicating. Note, check with linguistic programs again. Louder, but no physical indication of their presence. Lower temperature? Note, try thermometer next time. Louder now through helmet and earplugs. Buzzing, buzzing, saying something. Blur like condensation. That was the last of it. He had disappeared without a trace, save for an empty helmet, the noteboard, and a clean knife left in the murky morning sunlight. Karen added him to her list for the next service. They had been holding services before breakfast every few days, once they had tallied the missing. During the brief speech, the mayor recited the names of those gone, gave an update on progress, and ended by reiterating their logo. The colony sticks together. Another piece of bad news, Jasmine said. Despite our precautions, the rate of disappearance is unchanged. The mayor turned over the xenobiologist's board. The scout team should be back any day now. Relocating is going to be a bitch, but I don't think we have a choice. In case we need to buy more time, how is plan B? We should be ready to test it out in a few weeks, Omar said. He wasn't one for overselling, but his cautious optimism was promising. Omar's team seemed to think there was a way they could repurpose a decommissioned containment unit into an airtight chamber to protect against the peerlings. Karen didn't even know if they would be able to build enough for all the colonists, but if the first one worked, at least it was something. For the first time since the peerlings arrived, she started to feel a bit better. The sun glowed, enormous and orange-hued against the yellow sand dunes, as Karen walked back toward her room. Never fully dark and never fully light, they were in a perpetual twilight that gave the merest hint of daytime and nighttime. Still, it was enough to set their circadian rhythms to, reinforced by the automated lighting schedule. Above, five other planets sprawled against the abyss like flecks of perfectly round paint spots on a black canvas. Karen! Someone called. Wait! The mayor turned as the head of security, Malcolm, approached. She favored him with a terse smile. They had slept together a few times before the peerlings had shown up. Since then, she slept alone, taking one of the limited sleeping pills they had to ensure she didn't wake throughout the night. The chemist had supplied the executive team with the last of the drugs, with the rationale that they had to remain functioning for the sake of the colony. The chemist was synthesizing more, but not fast enough. You look exhausted. Malcolm said, scratching his beard. But I have good news. We just got a read on the East Scouting Crew's beacon. They should be within range tomorrow. Karen perked up, but she knew better than to feel too hopeful. In the East sprawled a wide basin that they had identified early on as a possible location for a second base if needed. What about the westbound team? she asked. Crisis management was all about planning, backup plans, and backups for those plans, When she had worked for Forever Light, countless fatalities and mining accidents taught her to operate in what she called aggressive defensive mode. Malcolm shook his head. No word from them yet. The mayor frowned. The western trail through the dried riverbeds was a faster route. They should have been back by now, or at least within comm range. How's your team's progress? 
she'd instructed security to set up automated motion-sensitive weaponry at night. So far, everything temporarily malfunctioned as soon as the peerlings showed up. It's definitely some sort of electromagnetic interference, he said. We're working on it. Karen knew that we're working on it meant no good news. Malcolm's gaze searched hers, and she sighed. She felt tired, bone-tired, despite the sleeping pills. He touched her elbow just as the curfew siren went off. She tilted her head toward the watershed, where the geologist crowd grew despite the siren. Make sure they get inside. The next morning, Karen got word that a scout team was back. Outside, she spotted only Shin, the eastbound team's field ops lead, next to the rover, his shaved head bowed. Karen quickened her pace as Jasmine and Malcolm neared. She had sent a team of ten. All gone. Shin shuddered and closed his eyes. Malcolm and Jasmine exchanged a look. All of them? Malcolm said. What happened exactly? Jasmine said. Tell us slowly. We went east to the basin like we planned. Two weeks to the vantage point. But the first night we slept out there, the sound was worse than anything I ever heard. He stabbed at his temple with his finger. Like it was right inside your head. We lost two people the first night. Everyone else the second. Wait a minute, Malcolm interrupted. You were by yourself the entire time after that? How did you manage? I started driving back the next morning. Heard them every night, but nothing as bad as in the basin. We were easy pickings out there. His hoarse voice barely worked. Karen wondered if it was from screaming. She pictured the group in their sleeping bags, watching the alien sky turn into its strange purple dusk, half dozing until the peerlings approached. She grimaced, thinking of the bad news she'd have to deliver at tomorrow's service. It's worse out there, Shin continued and wiped his forehead. I can't go again. His eyes fixed on Karen, and he very nearly pleaded. Don't make me go out there again. The mayor looked at him steadily. Malcolm, can you take Shin to medics and then meet in my office? She argued it out with Jasmine and the rest of the team for nearly an hour afterwards. We have to send out another scout team. There must be somewhere these things can't get to, the mayor said. Or somewhere they originate that we could target. The South Range, maybe. Too treacherous, Malcolm said. We lost too many people, Jasmine said. Sorry, Karen. The mayor was outvoted, so agreed to put it on the back burner for a few days. Someone knocked on the door and Karen turned, irritated at the interruption until Omar burst in. I've got it, he huffed. It took him a second to catch his breath, but he was grinning. Karen stood straighter. What? We were able to use a camera in a smaller version of the chamber as a proof of concept, he said entirely sealed and locked, and it decreased interference from the peerlings. Not prevented entirely, but definitely it decreased. Are you saying... Malcolm held himself very still. You recorded one of them? Omar pulled out his electronic pad. It's not clear, and it took me all day to calibrate it, but we definitely caught one. There, look. The night camera's clip showed an empty room through a glass ceiling. The footage grew more static, almost impossible to see, as a buzzing grew deafening. But then, for the briefest second, something bobbed by, whitish. It looked like... A jellyfish, Jasmine said. It kind of looks like an airborne jellyfish. Well, this rules out mass psychosis. Karen squinted at the screenshot. It had been one theory. Are those tentacles? They rewound and watched the scraggly blob float by again, but couldn't agree on definite features. Some sort of extraterrestrial life, Malcolm said finally. Were you able to record anything else? Omar shook his head. But this means the chambers should work on keeping out peerlings. Possibly. Great job, Karen said. We keep this confidential for now. 
Focus all your resources on finishing the chamber adaptation. It might be our only option at this point. That night, even through her chemically induced sleep, images of out-of-focus jellyfish plagued Karen. The blurred figures reached out to her, whether in supplication or aggression she couldn't tell. The next day, Karen was running late to the morning service. She straightened her ponytail and tried to blink the bleariness out of her eyes as she approached the town hall. But something was wrong even before she got inside. Another voice was speaking through the mic above shouts. Karen hurried through the open doors to see the geologist at her podium. Eyes are the windows to the soul, the geologist was saying, a garland of facsimile skulls interspersed with the local graygrass swinging from his neck. A single strand of hair stuck up above his head, absurd under the artificial light. And we are damned. They can see right into us and drag our immortal souls into hell. Some of the crowd hollered back, Damn straight! How do we repent? Karen pushed past dozens of shoulders, her eye catching strange molded skull charms that a few of the colonists wore around their necks. She climbed the stairs to the podium, her eyes scanning for Malcolm. He should have restored order, but he was nowhere to be seen. She pushed away a stab of worry as she faced the geologist. Herman, stop lying to these people, Karen snapped, facing the crowd beside him. She should have talked to him sooner, tried to reason with him without the audience, but it was too late now. She was good under pressure, with firm instincts taking hold and chasing away the last of her fatigue. You're making everything worse by sprouting this babble. Her voice rang out loud and authoritative, and a few of the crowd turned toward her. The colony sticks together, and you're breaking us apart. I've seen them. Herman screamed, and Karen froze as the crowd fell hushed. She'd kept Omar's video strictly confidential. Smugly, Herman continued, I've seen the peerlings. Someone shouted, What do they look like? And someone else, How did you survive? They came to me in a dream, Herman said, and Karen rolled her eyes, breathing easy again. They are angels from above and devils from below, seeking revenge for our wrongs. We have to repent. It's the only way to save our colony. In a dream? Do you even hear yourself? The mayor snorted and flicked the strange garland around his neck. And what the hell is that? Clay skulls? Morbid, really. He jerked back, the rogue hair pointing up like an arrow. There's nothing wrong with showing your faith to the peerlings. He turned back to the audience. They'll know who is who, who is the true believer, and who is not. Enough, Malcolm shouted, breaking through the crowd. Karen felt a sweep of relief. The peerlings hadn't gotten him. Herman glared and marched off the stage. Over the crowd's muttering, Karen gave her usual introduction to the service and read the list of names Malcolm provided her with. Half a dozen, plus the nine from the scouting mission. The faces below her grew stormier and stormier. Immediately after, Karen called another team meeting to brainstorm new solutions, to no avail. At sunset and bone-tired, Karen set out her usual preparations. Blindfold, earplugs, a fragment of her last sleeping pill. It wasn't more than an hour later she jolted out of her restless sleep. The pill had worn off far too early. A low buzzing was enough to make her stiffen and press a clammy hand over her blindfold. It had been days since she had heard the peerlings thanks to the pills. She had forgotten how horrible the sound was, droning on like a giant insect and intensifying by the wall on her left, as if something succeeded in burrowing through. Through her mask, she sensed the remaining light flicker and go dark, plunging her into an even inkier blackness. To distract herself from the fear that was starting to set in, Karen mentally recited the alphabet backwards. The high-pitched humming slinked around her room, from left to right and back again. She wiped off the sweat drenching the back of her neck and jammed the earplugs further in. No change. It was like the buzzing was inside her head. Karen tried not to think about the translucent thing she had seen on the screen, its pixelated tentacles waving like something underwater. 
Instead, she grabbed her pillow and started swinging. The thought of making contact with the straggly form was almost as bad as not. What do you want? What the hell do you want? Karen meant to say, but shrieked it instead. She stopped swinging and shivering, held still until the sound finally, mercifully subsided, disappearing the way it had came. The colony never did hear anything from the westbound scout team. That morning, the geologist was hanging, very publicly, above the stage in the town hall. Karen hadn't seen it herself, but it was easy enough to imagine Herman swinging like a bent stalk, his dark eyes wide and blank, clay skulls floating softly from his neck. Someone from Malcolm's early shift had spotted the body and cut it down before most of the colonists were up. The damage was done, though. Everyone knew by breakfast. There had only been one suicide in their ten-year history, and it happened shortly after the ship dropped them off. A young man, he would have been the mayor's age by now, couldn't take being landside and desperately wanted to return to space, even though it was a one-way trip. Pietra, Karen recalled his name even now. At Jasmine's urging, Karen called an emergency service. The colonists gathered, not quite mob-like, but with their anger simmering just below the surface, ready to break at any moment. Worse yet, one or two shot suspicious glances her way. Malcolm's team had clearly identified the case as a suicide. The mayor's mind had already gone to the worst-case scenario, a rumor gaining traction that it was a political murder, particularly after her very public confrontation with the geologist. She needed to give them a bone, and fast. We have a plan, the mayor announced as she swept up to the podium, ignoring Jasmine's startled glance. Karen didn't know exactly what she would say until she said it, but her words always flowed easily and with conviction, which was half the battle. We haven't mentioned this before now because the relocation was our primary objective, but our incredible engineering team has designed a device that may protect us from the peerlings. Murmurs rose and swept through the crowd, and she gestured to Omar in the front, who looked stunned. She didn't like catching her team off guard, but these were desperate times. Our head of engineering will tell you more. After a moment, Omar jogged up the stage next to her. It's a repurposed contamination suit, he said to the crowd. Locked against air contaminants and other physical toxins, it may potentially keep out the peerlings. Most of the muttering had died down, and quite a few colonists were listening attentively. Karen took the mic once more. We are doing the first test tonight. You are all welcome to come to the lab before sundown to see the setup. Omar's eyes grew wide and Jasmine's stare from the audience was laser intense. Someone in the crowd applauded, followed by others. The mayor didn't let her relief show, but kept her jaw firm and her eyes focused as she shouted their rallying cry. The colony sticks together. The applause rose and a few cheers broke out as some echoed the cry back to her. Is the unit even ready yet? Jasmine hissed once they had barely closed the doors to Karen's office. It's going to have to be, Malcolm said grimly, or you risk a riot. I had a lot more testing I need to do, Omar began. But it's close enough? Karen interjected. It's close enough, he repeated, though he looked uncharacteristically frazzled. But we need to do a lot more tests before trying it out with a human. We shouldn't rush this, Jasmine said and we'll need to select the subject carefully. It'll basically be a suicide mission. I'm doing it, Karen said, and the rest were silent for a split second before protesting. She held up a hand. I have to. Before I worked for Forever Light, I was at a small food preservation company. When we had an outbreak of listeria, hitting six full ships, we very nearly had a mob situation on our hands. People were starving, but everyone was afraid to eat the new batch. Do you know how I handled that? Karen looked at her team, all of whom stared steadily back at her. Cautious, afraid, but trusting. They trusted her, and she was going to see this through. She continued. I broadcast myself eating a full food pack, picked at random by one of the most vocal critics. It was a stunt, but it was authentic. 
It dissipated everyone's fears more effectively than anything else I could have done. We are about to lose control of the whole colony, and this will regain their trust. We can't risk anarchy or we're dead. Simple as that. Omar looked thoughtful, and Jasmine's brow was furrowed. Malcolm was the only one who looked entirely unconvinced, but Karen didn't give him a chance to chime in. It'll work, I'm sure of it. Sunset's just around the corner. Karen opened her office door. Let's hustle. This is a terrible idea, Malcolm said again as the mayor zipped up one of their decontamination suits. It was a bulky fit, but she folded her sleeves and tucked the sagging pant legs into her boots. While a suit alone hadn't provided protection for the exobiologist, they figured the more barriers between Karen and the peerlings, the better. We're out of time. If it works, we can start constructing units for the whole colony. It'll take a lot of resources, but it's the only option we have right now. Karen was careful not to look directly in Malcolm's eyes. If she did, and spotted the hint of fear she was sure was there, she might lose her nerve. Malcolm shifted from one foot to the other, not quite pacing, but holding back an agitated energy that might all but yank her out of there. Before he could do anything like that, Karen stepped into the glass chamber. The unit was meant for containment of one or two adults should they encounter any infections that needed quarantine. It was like being in a fishbowl with room for a cot. The unit rested in a cleared-out section of the lab storage area next to the observation room. Her team would be on the other side of the observation glass with a mic and recording equipment. They fully expected the equipment to fizzle again, but Jasmine insisted they try. Dozens of colonists packed into the observation room talking amongst themselves as they stared down through the glass. What are you going to do, open your eyes as soon as you hear them? Malcolm said to her from outside the chamber. It's not going to work. We have to see if it's safe. If bacteria can't get in here, I don't see how they will. Karen did look at Malcolm now, and the worry line that creased his brow gave her pause. This is the best option. She said the words as confidently as she could, but the crease only deepened. Omar hurried over and pointed to a small set of dials and a screen. Final tests on the air filters and life support are all set. You can talk to us through here. I don't know how long it will last once the peerlings show up, but if the cam was any indication, all the tech will be in and out for a bit. The cameras in there with you are on auto, with local backups and streams to us, so hopefully we can see whatever you see before they cut out. Good luck, Karen. Jasmine knocked against the glass. It's go time. You can handle this. I know you can. Malcolm was harder to see off as Omar sealed the door. If anything starts to go wrong, close your eyes and holler, okay? He said before it closed. Piece of cake, Karen smiled. Malcolm's team cleared the observation room and readied cots and blindfolds for the management group. Karen perched, trying to ignore the scratchiness of her suit and the heaviness of her helmet. She felt as she always did under pressure, alert but calm, excited even at the thought of finally figuring out what these damn things were. Though the sun had just set, the lab storage area was brightly lit. She glanced up at the observation window where her team reclined, blindfolded, waiting. All good? Karen said through the mic and settled herself back against the cot, forcing her eyes closed. All... Omar's voice started when it cut out and back in. Good. Karen? Can you hear me? Static answered her. The peerlings were there. The mare strained her ears. There, she could just barely hear it. The faintest buzz. It's now or never, she thought, her heart pounding. She cracked one eye and took a moment to adjust to the light inside her chamber. She almost yelled out in joy. The chamber was working. She was protected. And she could see. There was a single peerling floating like a grotesque, translucent microbe or shrimp, magnified to human size, outside of her chamber. The room, saved for the light next to her, and up in the observation area, had dimmed, 
electronics flickering off in the peerling's presence. It turned. A scream tried to work its way out of Karen's throat, but dried up as she gasped. The peerling had eyes. Horrible eyes. Three human-like irises burrowed into the mare, causing a hum to strike up within her body. The buzzing differentiated itself into words. Help us, the peerling said. The voice didn't sound remotely human, even though Karen could understand it. It sounded like a swarm of bees trying to talk. So they were sentient and communicative life forms. Karen didn't lose a beat and prayed that the equipment was recording some of this. What are you? She said, carefully but firmly, while continuing to keep eye contact. She had to make it clear that they weren't prey to be picked off, even though its irises made her want to cower. What do you want from us? Perhaps we can work together, if you tell me. Never in a million years would she have guessed what it said next. We are you. Karen started to shiver, her skin bunched and tender despite her suit. What do you mean? That doesn't make sense. Try again. Colonists. Colonists. The peerling buzzed, and the contamination unit felt far too small to Karen. So small she wondered if she was getting enough breathable air. She didn't want the peerling to talk anymore, not to say another word. Its buzzing continued. Stuck. Atmosphere holds. Earth-like, but not Earth. Sky like a wall. Won't let us go. Need to go. Karen practically laughed it was so absurd. But something about the peerling's three-iris gaze looked familiar and sent a shiver down her spine. Her body started to vibrate again. She shook it off and focused. Where do you need to go? Need you. The peerling seemed agitated, flickering like an apparition. More colonists go further. Critical mass uh, close. Escape atmosphere. Weren't meant to be here. Trapped. Can't go where we need to go. Need to go. The geologist's words came back to her unbidden. Eyes are the windows to the soul. Like where? Heaven? Hell? The words seemed to dry up in Karen's mouth. They aren't real. We don't know. Need to go. Its agitation had turned to urgency, to a demand. The mare had never been religious, but now an unwanted image popped up of her soul being wrenched out of her body by the peerling. So what, are you like ghosts of our... Karen couldn't finish the thought, and instead glanced up at the observation glass. Her team was sitting, but still blindfolded. Omar pushing at his control panel and Jasmine's mouth moving. Malcolm was blindly pounding on the glass. If you were once here with us, Pietra, Herman, whoever you are, why would you pick us off like this? Why would you murder us? The colony sticks together, the peerling said. The colony sticks together, need to go. Other peerlings had appeared, three dozen at least, together in a white cloud pushing against the wall of her chamber. If she counted them, and she wouldn't, she couldn't face the idea just yet. 
It might be the number of colonists that had died since they landed. The buzzing from the peerlings grew louder, coaxing her cells to hum in unison. Not just hum, but rupture. A word came to her. Evanesce. They were forcing her to evanesce and become like them. Some of the peerlings clouded the observation glass above, which had gone dark, and Karen hoped her colleagues kept their eyes shut. A wisp of translucent material coalesced in front of her, and the temperature in her unit dropped ten degrees. The light in her chamber blinked and went out. Karen closed her eyes as the peerling that had spoken to her took full shape inside the chamber. Mayor, it buzzed. She began to come apart, unravel like a badly made sweater. Karen clenched her teeth and eyelids and hoped that at least some of the equipment had recorded something to warn the others. Her eyelids were cold, tugging, pouring. The world around her materialized as both sharp and multiplexed, as though she were looking through a diamond. She felt the beginnings of a massive, nameless pressure overhead, and a distance so far and so wrong, it racked her with vertigo. They were too far, they would never make it back to their tether, to the core that collected them once their bodies failed. The cycle was blocked. This world was not for them. They had made a horrible mistake. She had one last thought, a really realization, before she fully dissipated. Everyone opens their eyes in the end. That was Casey Griffon's The Peerlings, as read by Amy Pownessa. Amy Pownessa has been the producer and host of The Bloodlust, a horror movie review podcast, since 2014. She has narrated stories for Knife Point Horror, Those Snowy Nights, and the Alexandria Archives. She's thrilled to narrate for Tales to Terrify, especially because she credits the podcast with reigniting her love for horror fiction. Amy lives just outside of Detroit with her lovely wife, two vicious 12-year-old attack dogs, and a fluffy orange cat who dominates them all. Thank you, Amy. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Leitze and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives, 4.0 License. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.